Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. This is Trinity Radio and I am Braxton Hunter. And I know that for many of you, you uh, just got off of the William Lane Craig and Joshua Swami Das stream over at Capturing Christianity. I'm so glad you're here. This is kind of an exciting day for me because this is the first time I've ever done one of my solo uh, response videos as a live stream. So it's kind of exciting and um, we're going to look at an incredible video to kick that uh, series of live streams, hopefully, that go into the future off. Uh, we're going to kick them off with a discussion of William Lane Craig and uh, Alex Malpass as they recently had a discussion on the second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument, which many of you know is the argument that I find the most persuasive in favor of God's existence. So uh, because this is live, I will be taking your questions and I look forward to that. Um, but one thing that I must say as we, uh, as we do that is uh, this is new for me, trying to manage everything and to uh, interact with you at the same time. And this is, of course, all a part of my attempt <coughs> excuse me, to get closer to the audience, to have more personal interaction uh, with you. And so uh, what we're going to do here is I'm going to try to uh, give a monologue, sort of a, a response video like I typically would. Uh, I may mention some comments as I go, but I'm primarily going to try to focus my thoughts and get through this in the way that I would typically get through a response video. Uh, but then at the end, I am going to try to look at some questions. Now, if we if we go really long, I do want this to be a video that is going to be helpful in the years going forward. And so because of that, if it is the case that I go too long, which we all know I tend to do, um, I may just try to hit the super chat questions, but um, but I don't, I don't expect or require that. And uh, we will uh, try to get to as many of the questions from everybody as we can at the end. So thank you again for being here and let's jump into this discussion. Now to set it up again, Alex Malpass and William Lane Craig were discussing the second premise of Craig's uh, Kalam cosmological argument, which there are various, various ways that even Craig has framed his argument over the years. So I'm just going to go with the way that I most typically use it myself. Uh, premise one is everything that begins to exist or whatever begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the conclusion is uh, the universe must have a cause for its existence. And then typically Craig or any other classical apologist that might use this argument will go on to present what's known as a conceptual analysis to see what that cause might be. And so, uh, but we're going to focus, this is very specific. We're focusing on the second premise of this argument. So if you're the kind of person that says, yeah, but this doesn't prove God, the Kalam doesn't prove God. Uh, well, that, that's fine, but that's kind of a discussion for another time because specifically this was a, a dialogue that surrounded the second premise, and that's going to be the primary focus. So um, let me let me also say that, uh, that I really like Alex Malpass. Um, he seems like a, a, an incredibly friendly guy. He's obviously very accomplished. Both these men are philosophers. And so I have to hand it not only to both of the guests, uh, but also to Cameron Bertuzzi of Capturing Christianity for somewhat raising the bar in terms of these kinds of discussions uh, in, world, in the worldview arena on YouTube, which we know can become so toxic and unhelpful. And so I really like Alex. He seems like a very accomplished, very knowledgeable, very friendly and approachable guy. And notice the difference as we look at these clips, and perhaps you've seen the debate already. Notice the difference between how these men interact 
and how often we see the interaction online. There is a mutual respect. There is a friendliness at times. I'm going to point this out as we go forward. There's even a uh, an attempt to try and uh, make the other person's uh, analogy or something stronger, and that happens in both cases. I just love that interaction, and so I, w- I want us to try and emulate that on YouTube for those of us who are YouTube uh, worldview discussers as we go forward, all right? So um, anyway, uh, let's jump in, and what we're going to do is we're going to listen to Craig present first his two arguments, or at least reference his two arguments, in favor of his premise, too, that the universe began to exist. Now, obviously, based on the thumbnail you may have seen, the question is, has the uh, has the universe always existed? Um, does, does the past history of the universe extend forever? And to put it in more specific language to this discussion, does it go back infinitely into the past? And so that's, a, that's an interesting discussion. And so Craig is going to present the reasons he doesn't think so. Now, to, to be as charitable as possible to Mall Pass, and I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Alex, um, I don't, you'll notice on the card, on the thumbnail, I just, I just had Alex saying, maybe, <laughs> and uh, perhaps for you, that's the most appropriate position to take, though hopefully not by the time we get done here. Uh, but Alex is, is, is not saying, as far as I can tell, I don't, I don't know that Alex is saying that it's definitely the case that the universe is past infinite. What he's saying is uh, perhaps that the, the reasons for thinking that it is finite are not as strong as Craig uh, thinks that they are. One of the things that I hope to accomplish in this video is to take, so this is not so much of me trying to show why I think Malpass is wrong. Um, Alex, if you're watching, that's not really my goal here, although I, I do disagree. My point here is to try and take a difficult subject and to make it more understandable. I don't have many things counting in my favor, but one thing that I have been told and that I think is might be true is that I have an ability to take issues that are somewhat difficult to grapple with and make them more understandable. So hopefully that happens here. Uh, maybe you'd say, Braxton, you don't even have that ability. And fair enough. Uh, maybe I don't. But that's what I'm going to try to do and to make this more approachable because this is one of those videos that I've uh, been sent and said, hey, I didn't know what the heck was going on with this. I got that same response with the Michael Jones and Matt Dillahunty debate. And so in each of those, I'm just trying to make it more understandable to people so that you can fairly judge for yourself who has the better position, the more acceptable position. All right, so uh, with that, let's jump into Craig's explanation of his defenses of premise two of his argument. This argument has come roaring back into prominence in the late 20th and early 21st century. I think largely as a result of remarkable discoveries in astrophysical cosmology, which point to the past finitude of the universe, thus making people more open Um, to the idea that the universe began to exist. And so I've defended two philosophical arguments, as you say, in defense of this premise. The first one is based upon the impossibility of the existence of an actual infinite, and the second is based upon the impossibility of forming an actual infinite by successive addition. All right, so what what we see here is uh, Craig is laying out two criticisms, or two defenses, I should say, of premise two. Number one is the impossibility of actual an actual infinite number of things, and uh, specifically a, a past series of events that is infinite. And he's also laid out the uh, 
the fact that you cannot reach an actual infinite by successive addition. Now we're going to talk about each one of those. And, and I have to say this, that uh, perhaps if you've been listening for a long time to this channel, you've heard me say some of these things before, but it's important, I think, because I want this video to be the kind of video that can be helpful on this subject going forward. So just bear with me. So uh, with the impossibility of actual infinites, it's important to understand what we mean when we're using some of these terms because terms are important. And in fact, Craig and Alex both use, we find out, have different, slightly different understandings of these terms. I don't think it would be fair to say they were talking past each other because as I listened to Alex's, at least much of Alex's response video to this debate, and uh, I know the thinking of Craig from years of studying his work, I, I don't think they were talking past each other. I think they noted the nuances between how they use these terms, but perhaps you aren't aware of these terms, and so I want to make them clear. So when we talk about the impossibility of an actual infinite number of things, um, and, and the impossibility of that, by the way, is something that Alex, I think, rightly comes back to and presses on uh, later on, and we're going to hear that. But uh, the, the important thing here is to understand why is it that Craig thinks that um, an actual infinite number of things is impossible? Well, one of the reasons for that is because when we say actual, what we mean is that it, it actually exists in reality. Um, it's been instantiated, some would say, in reality. So I typically give these examples. We might say, well, there's an infinite number of stars in the sky. We might say that colloquially because it sounds uh, awe-inspiring or something. But there actually aren't an infinite number of stars in the sky. There's a number. It's a really, really, really big number, but there is a number. And if we knew what that number was, and some people make estimations, we could actually put that number down with specificity on paper. And if we could add one more star, we could just add one more number to that incredibly large number. Similarly with grains of sand on the beaches of the world, there actually is a number, though it seems to be an obscenely high number. There is actually a number. Or perhaps, uh, what if we went to the uh, furthest extent one could perhaps imagine? What if there is uh, an, an, a multiverse, like Sean Carroll thinks, but not an infinite multiverse, because that's the very subject we're discussing. There are trillions of other universes just as big and vast as ours. And, and what if we wanted to put a number to the atoms in all of those universes, including our own? Well, that number would be so big, we couldn't even fathom. I mean, it would just be unbelievable. Uh, however, you could actually work out uh, with the estimations of atoms in the physical universe, you could actually multiply that by a trillion, you could come up with a number. I mean, there is actually a number, and if you had one more universe or one more atom, you could add more numbers to that series. It's not an actual infinite. Um, so when we say infinite, we're not talking about a really, really, really big number. We're talking about there is no number. That's how big it is. It is infinite. It's not even really a number in that sense. It's more of a philosophical concept. It just goes on forever and ever and ever, and there is no number. So when we're talking about the past history of the universe being actually infinite or having no beginning, we are talking about the past history of the universe, not that there's a really, really big number back to the first moment, but there is no number. It just goes back and back forever and ever and ever, and, and there just is no end to it. And that is... Um, a, 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 an interesting idea, but it raises some absurdities, as Craig puts it. So uh, let's let's talk about what some of those absurdities might be. So, for example, uh, let's think of um, uh, they brought up Craig brought up what's called Hilbert's Hotel for David Hilbert, and that's an interesting uh, thought experiment to imagine what it would be like. 
uh, what if you had uh, an infinite uh, hotel and and uh, and there were people in that hotel, but you added needed to add an infinite number of more people. But I actually like the analogy that um, or the that uh, Alex Malpass raises. Alex raises the idea that I've used many times of an infinite library. So imagine that you've got a library that has an infinite number of books, and every other book is black and every other book is red. So you've got an infinite number of red and black books. Uh, sequentially, red, black, red, black, red, black. Now, what if you, rem and it's actually infinite, it really in the real world, it's an actual infinite library. And let's say you removed all of the red books so that all are left are the black books. What you've just done is you've removed half of infinity if such an idea were possible. You've removed now half of infinity. So now how much is left? You should have half of infinity, right? So what's that number? Well, this is where the absurdities come in. You still have infinite. You still have the same number you had to begin with. And in fact, the half that you took out is also infinite, which means that half of infinity is equal to the whole. It's equal to infinity as well. What if you took infinity and added 47 to it? Still infinity. What if you subtracted 73? Still infinity. So these are the absurdities that you run into. And one of the really difficult things, and this could boggle your mind, but one of the really difficult ideas this difficult to grasp is that one of the problems is if you if we were to say that the, that we have crossed and this gets a little bit into Craig's second defense so we'll use it as a bridge but if you were to cross uh, for us to be at this moment that we're experiencing right now which is April fourteenth twenty twenty to be at this moment uh, the the past history of the universe would have had to cross an actual infinite number of events or moments to arrive at this moment that we're now experiencing. But if you cross half of infinity on your way here, you would still have exactly the same amount of time to go. You'd still have infinity, which means you couldn't have ever gotten to this moment. So the fact that we're experiencing this moment um, seems to count strongly against the past history of being infinite, as well as the other absurdities that emerge. One way around this is based on your uh, perspective of time. Do you hold to what's called an A theory or a B theory? And we're going to get to that later in this episode. So I'll just table that for now. But um, suffice it to say, they didn't go into the B theory or what's called the tenseless theory of time. In this discussion, they stayed on an A theory. And what that means is that the present moment is all that's real. The past was real, but it's not real now. The future will be real, but it's not real yet. And the only thing that is real is the is this current uh present moment that we're experiencing and each moment is passing out of existence as we move through time. So uh, that will become important, but th these absurdities and on this tensed A theory of time that we could have never gotten to this moment all count against, strongly against, I think, uh, the past history being infinite. Now, the, the next, before we go to the next clip, the next thing that Craig raises is, is that you can never reach infinity by successive addition. And what he means by that is by counting one, two, three, four, five, six, just counting, when would you reach uh, all if not or infinity? When would you reach that first, when you're now no longer in the realm of counting these numbers, but now you're in the realm of the infinite, when would that come? Because whatever number you can imagine there would there would still be a number we could add onto that that would not be infinity but would still be finite you see so at what point in counting one two three four five six seven eight you could never get to infinity and both of these things but but then craig says think about the past history of the universe the the, the past history of the universe is is a series of of counting and crossing 
individual causal events or temporal moments to arrive at this moment. It's one, two, three, four. And if we could have been there the whole time, we could have counted. And you can't ever reach infinity that way. So you couldn't have a past infinite um, history to arrive at this moment. In fact, uh, there's another element to this that has to do with the actual versus potential infinites. Now, we're going to hear Malpass in just a moment. I don't want to leave him out. And if you're watching this, Alex, I don't want to leave you out. Nevertheless, I do think in terms of getting the terminology right, the actual versus potential infinite is very, very important. What Craig means by actual infinite, as I said, is an infinite number of something, like if there actually were an infinite number of grains of sand or stars, or temporal moments in the past that brought us to this moment. What if there actually were an infinite number of those things? That, that, would, be, that would be an actual infinite, that it exists in the world. And what Craig wants to say is that that doesn't exist. Actual infinites don't exist. Potential infinites exist. And what we mean by potential infinite would be um, best modeled by thinking of the future from, say, a Christian theistic paradigm, where the future is endless. It, it, it will never end, right? So you say, oh, well, that's an infinite. Well, it, it, what we're saying here is that in the future, as we move through the future, we're moving through a potential infinite. That doesn't mean it might become infinite. We don't mean potential in that way, that it has the potential to become infinite in the sense that you're probably thinking. What it means is, as we're moving through time, we are always approaching infinity, right? Because we're moving out further and further, and every number we add is closer to what we might imagine as infinity. However, we'll never actually get there. So if you wanted to go 10 trillion years into the future, it still wouldn't be, we still wouldn't have arrived at infinity, right? So that would still be a potential, but not actual infinite. So there are no actual infinites in reality. But there are potential infinites. You could do the same thing with a line. And I think Malpass brought this up in his debate review. Uh, you could have a line and you could imagine dividing that line an infinite number of times. So the infinite exists kind of conceptually. You can imagine dividing it an infinite number of times. But you never could actually divide it an infinite number of times because no matter how many times you divided it, you would, you would still not have reached uh, actual infinites. Now, in his debate review, Alex, and I'll say this and then I'll go to the next thing, Alex actually brought up an interesting difference in terminology that he suggests that I like. And that difference in terminology would be what he think, he says what Craig is saying to his mind would be something like to say, well, it's kind of like a complete, an actual infinite would be like a completed infinite, right? An infinite set that is now being completed and instantiated in reality, whereas um, a potential infinite would be an incomplete set. And I actually like that, Alex. I think that's helpful. Uh, maybe there's some reason that I'm not aware of why that would, would not be correct, but I think that's fair, and I like that terminology. So uh, at relevant points, I'll try to use it. But let's go on to the next thing that Craig says to bear out the importance of understanding actual versus potential infinites. Given a certain theory of time called the tensed theory of time, I think it does make sense to treat the series of events later than any point in time is potentially infinite. The number of events will always be finite, but increasing uh, endlessly toward infinity as a limit. But I think it makes no sense at all to treat the past as potentially infinite. In order for the past to be potentially infinite, it would have to be finite, yet growing in the earlier than direction. And that's just completely contrary to the nature of time, which involves temporal succession 
of one moment after another in the later than direction. So we mustn't confuse the mental regress of counting events beginning in the present and going into the past with the actual real progress of events in time, which would involve, in a case of a beginningless series, um, uh, events without a beginning um, and then growing forward in time. And if we were to ask how many events have transpired up to now, the answer would be an actually infinite number of events. Um, if we were to divide time into hours and say how many hours have elapsed prior to the present hour, the answer would be an actually infinite number of hours. And that is true at every point in the infinite past. At every point in the infinite past, an infinity of events an actual infinity of events has already been instantiated in reality. Whether, whereas if you begin at a point in time and go forward uh, in the later than direction on a tense theory of time, you will have simply a finite number of events and ever more events being added successively. All right, so I did want to throw up a, discuss uh, a comment that was made um, can God imagine a scenario of infinitely many actual stars? So, John, thank you for that. We are going to come to that in just a few moments later on in the show where I'm going to talk about God's, uh, God's awareness of future events and how that plays into all this, something that wasn't discussed in the debate, but something that I think is actually really helpful. So I'm going to hold on to that comment and I'm going to bring it back up in just a little while because that's a good point that needs to be discussed. And thank you for raising it. So um, as we uh, as we look at this, there are a couple of things that William Lane Craig mentioned here. One, he talked more about the absurdities there. But the second thing is um, what perhaps one wants to say, well, perhaps the past is potentially infinite. Maybe it's not actually infinite, but maybe it's potentially infinite. That would be unhelpful, too. And one of the reasons that that would be unhelpful is because, um, number one, it, it wouldn't give you the actual infinite, which is what you need, the completed infinite, to say that the past actually is infinite. Secondly, to say that the past is potentially infinite would be to say something like that you have a timeline, and let's say that this, uh, let's say from your perspective, this side of the timeline has an arrow indicating the future, but this side of the timeline has an arrow indicating the past and that the timeline is actually growing in both directions. And as Craig says, this would be at odds with what we understand to be the case with temporal becoming. So that that wouldn't, because we understand that time comes successively as we go. What does it even mean to say that time is growing in the earlier than direction? It wouldn't, wouldn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now, it, it is interesting that in Alex's debate review, he did say something like, Yes, but more if you if you have this tensed theory of time where the where where things that are happening now will become the past, then the past is growing, but in the um, in the later than direction. So each moment that passes, like the beginning of this um, YouTube video, for example, is already in the past and has now been added to the collection that we call past things. the The problem with that is that wouldn't help either, and I don't think Malpass, Alex Malpass, understood it to be helpful in the in in terms of the what I'm discussing now. That wouldn't be helpful in terms of a past infinite universe either, because it would be to say that the past is growing, but in the later than direction. So that the past, really, what you're saying there is the whole timeline, regardless of where we are on the timeline, is timeline is still growing but in the later than direction, and the whole timeline is a potential infinite, but will never actually be an actual infinite or a completed 
infinite to use Alex's terminology. And so I think that that is a, an important point to mention. All right, so at this point, it's fair to let Alex take a shot and let's hear what he has to say. And by the way, Alex, I wanted to say this. If I don't include something that you would have liked me to include, I'm sorry about that. It, that was not intentional. And if I misunderstand uh, something you're saying or I don't explain it properly, that's also not intentional. I'm trying to accurately uh, display what happened and just bring clarity to the discussion. So if that is the case, you can put that on me, but it's not an intentional thing. So let's go on now. And uh, let's take a look at what Alex has to say about this idea. Primarily, he's responding here. We're going to talk more as we go on about the idea of reaching an infinite through successive addition. But let's talk here about the idea of the impossibility of a past infinite universe. Um, and let's see what Alex has to say about that. It's intuitive, right? I, I think I do also wonder that it's not quite clear to me that there's necessarily a contradiction involved um, and there could be it depends how we draw draw out the um, absurdities and unless we do bring out a contradiction it's not quite clear to me if saying that something is absurd is the same as saying that it's impossible I mean I kind of feel like absurd, absurd things well absurdity is kind of in the eye of the beholder right like I mean quantum mechanics uh, has um, implications that many people would have considered to be absurd prior to their kind of um, empirical confirmation. You know, superposition, for instance, sound, seems absurd. Quantum tunneling, like you know, how can something move through a solid body without um, without sort of breaking through it like a bullet or something? Um, and yet that sort of thing happens. Um, what quantum teleportation, like blah blah blah. So there are things that you could think of as being absurd, but we've grown to live with their weird consequences and. Um, I, I sort of feel like, um, I think some philosophers anyway, there's a decent chunk of philosophers who feel the same way as I do about that, that very well, they may be absurd, these consequences of actually infinite things, but we would prefer to see slightly more than that for us to feel confident in embracing the same conclusion that Bill does about that. All right, so um, Malpass, I think, raises something that perhaps some of my Christian listeners will think, yeah, but that, that's just hand-waving. But I want to give it a little more credibility than that. I, th I think it has more credibility than that. He says, look, man, let's say that it's weird, okay? It, it, William Lane Craig says it, these are mathematical absurdities. These are absurdities. But he hasn't shown a contradiction in this. So that just means that it's weird, it's absurd, but I like when he says absurdity is in the eye of the beholder. And there is something to say about that. There is a subjective aspect to absurdity. Now, I'm sure that Craig could write down, I could write down what should qualify as absurd. And I think that these mathematical quandaries would result in what we could call an absurdity. But fair enough. You think that absurdity is a subjective thing. It's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but, but, but he says you, you haven't shown a contradiction here. And there are weird things. In fact, he points to a couple of things that he would call absurdities, perhaps, or at least he suggests that they might fall into Craig's definition of an absurdity. And some of those things would be like, what about some of the things that come to us from quantum physics? For example, the, the quantum uh, superposition, where you have a particle, it's uncertain where this particle will be, and it seems to be in multiple places at once unless you measure it. And when you measure it, it's the superposition collapses into an actual location in space-time. That is weird, right? At least it seems weird. I'll even go so far as to agree with Alex that it seems absurd. Um, 
further, he talks about, he just at the end there, he talked about quantum uh, transportation um, or whatever it is. Quant quantum, uh, yeah, quantum transportation. That to me is, is even weirder. So you have, just, just to set it up, you have two entangled particles. And I won't spend too much time on this. And when you have these two entangled particles, they both seem to have, they'll either be spin up or spin down, but they both seem to have both spin up and spin down until you measure one of them. But when one of them is measured by a measurement device, it will either be spin up or spin down. Okay, that's not necessarily all that weird. It is weird for reasons, same reasons the superposition is weird. Uh, but then when you go, when you check the other, the other particle, the entangled particle, it's going to be the opposite. So if this one is spin down, that one's going to be spin up and uh, vice versa. And the, the weird thing about it is not only is that true, it's true across the room. And they speculate it would be true across the nation, across the world, across the universe, which indicates that it seems like whatever the information is passing between these entangled particles is moving faster than the speed of light, which is bizarre. And definitely seems to count in favor of absurdity, right? But the transportation issue is if you introduce another particle to one of the entangled particles, the information from that particle that has been introduced to the entangled particle will then be copied onto the entangled particle, kind of like a Star Trek uh, transporter, right, where it goes uh, to, to the other place. Now, this has only been done with particles, but still, that seems absurd across, faster than the speed of light, it seems. Now, the, the problem with this is there are actually uh, other hypotheses as to how this works. You could take Sean Carroll's multiverse uh, a possibility, which I, I don't personally hold to, but it, it, would, it would result in a deterministic and, uh, issue that, um, that, that, that would explain it. Uh, Craig himself takes more of a Newtonian approach, if I understand correctly, which works on classical physics. Uh, there are other explanations. Some of you are perhaps... Uh, aware of Michael Jones' idealism that, that, is, uh, that is chalked up to this um, digital physics sort of understanding of the universe that Michael Jones takes from some physicists and philosophers and then applies that to God, that God is this um, mind that is simulating all these things. So there are other ways of doing it that work deterministically that don't result in these absurdities. Now, which one is true? I don't know which one is true. I, I don't know. Talk to Michael Jones about that because I think he does think he knows with a higher level of certainty than I have. But what I will say to you is there are these other uh, possible, perhaps plausible hypotheses. As far as the absurdities for the that, that an actual infinite would result in, I, I don't see any explanatory hypothesis that would make sense of that. Um to satisfaction. Now, again, absurdity might be in the eye of the beholder and perhaps satisfaction is in the eye of the beholder. But this is one thing I want to point out when it comes to Christian apologetics, I think, and I don't think Alex Malpass has this in mind. And I want to say that clearly, but when it comes to Christian apologetics and these worldview discussions that we have, it is often, it often seems to be the case that, well, you don't have a conclusive argument uh, that this is impossible, which we'll get to that in a moment. But Think about it more modestly and say, yeah, but what, what seems more plausible? Which seems more likely to be true? That the past is finite given these facts, these absurdities, these, uh, these issues that we've raised? What seems more plausible? That the past is finite or that it's infinite? I don't know how anyone, whether you have, and Craig kind of says this in debate, whether you have a demonstration of a contradiction you know, completely or not, which one seems more likely? Well, clearly it seems more likely given this evidence that the past history of the universe is finite, not infinite. So that's what you should believe. Um, and if you're waiting around to pass judgment until you have absolute certainty, well, that's a waste of time, right? Because 
you know, a lot of people think you can't even have absolute certainty about your own existence, right? So, so, uh, so don't wait around for that. What we're looking for is not a pinhole possibility to wiggle out of the force of the argument. If it, see, we're not talking about God necessarily here yet. We're just talking about the past history of the universe. And it seems the most reasonable position to take is that given this evidence, the past history of the universe is, um, is finite. That, that's what it seems like it should be. Now, do we have a demonstration? Uh, I think Malpass raised a really good point here. You haven't shown that it's impossible, right? You haven't shown that the past history of the universe is impossible. In other words, you haven't shown a contradiction in the past history. And Craig is claiming that, that it's impossible. So uh, whether he claims a contradiction there or not, I think that we can say some things about that. Uh, both of them raise the issue of the Grim Reaper paradox, and I discussed this on a previous episode when I responded to Cirrus the Skeptic. Let's hear Craig explain the Grim Reaper paradox now, and let's see how we can adapt what Craig says under a different version of the Grim Reaper argument to show a contradiction both on an A or a B theory of time. And again, if you don't know what I mean by A theory and B theory of time, we're going to get to that later in the show. But let's take a listen now and see if this helps out and gives us clarity. Uh, and then Alex mentioned earlier the um, Grim Reaper paradox that Alexander Proust and Kuhns have uh, used. This is another illustration of the absurdity of forming an actual infinite by successive addition. In this story, we are to imagine that you are alive at midnight. But at 1 a.m., if you're still alive then, the Grim Reaper will swing his scythe and kill you. But then there's another Grim Reaper, number two, who will kill you at 12.30 uh, a.m. if you're still alive then. But then there's a third Grim Reaper at a quarter past 12 who will kill you if you're still alive then, and so on ad infinitum. Now, if an actually infinite number of things can be formed by successive addition, this leads to a contradiction. Um, namely, you cannot live past midnight and yet, you cannot be killed by any Grim Reaper. Okay, so what Craig just explained there, and I realize it it's, it's difficult to follow that. I'll uh, perhaps link in the description my explanation of it, as well as the explanation given by um, uh, Bob Koontz, I think, in, uh, in the description. I'll link that. But, uh, but what he's showing here is if, if every Grim Reaper was supposed to kill the subject, um, whichever Grim Reaper, you, when you get to the end of the series at, or the first part of the series, whatever you want to say, a past infinite series to this moment uh, where you have the, it terminates with a final Grim Reaper, you'll both have something written down and you'll have nothing written down. And if you wanted to say, well, the, the Grim Reaper halfway through the series at 1230 was the first to write something down, or, or perhaps the, the one way back in the series even further than that, wherever you start, there's an infinite series of Grim Reapers that have already passed who both should have written something down, uh, should, I'm sorry, we'll get to writing down in a moment, should have killed the subject and didn't, uh, but that was their their whole goal and they, they can't fail to do it. But yeah, whichever one you say is the first to have done it, they didn't do it, uh, but yet they did or should have, right? And and so it, when you say, well, the first Grim Reaper would have been the first to kill him, but there's not a first Grim Reaper. Remember, this series goes back infinitely. So this results in a contradiction. So they're on a tense theory of time you actually do have a contradiction with a past infinite series of, of events in, in the past. So that actually does result in a contradiction, which means it cannot possibly be true. 
or someone would have to show where there's a dissimilarity between this analogy and reality. But let's adapt what Craig says to one of the other analogies given, which is the Grim Messenger analogy. And the Grim Messenger paradox works on a B theory of time, a tense-less theory of time, where uh, you, you have both the past, present, and future are all real, and they all exist for lack of better tenseless terminology simultaneously. All right, let's say you have a past history of, of Grim Messengers. Uh, this is a less violent explanation. And so each one it has a piece of paper, uh, is going to be passed a piece of paper by the previous Grim Messenger. And he's supposed to, if there's not, he's supposed to check. And if there's a, a number already on it, he passes it on. If there's not a number, he'll write his number and then pass it on to the next Grim Reaper in the series. When the Grim Messenger chain terminates, let's say at 100 BC, uh, that terminating Grim Messenger, what will be the number written on it? Well, you get contradictory results. There will both be a number and there will both not be a number. And if you say no, because surely some grim messenger prior in the chain would have written a number, I agree with you. All of them would have. But whichever one you want to say was the first um, to write something down, then, then you have an infinite series, a literally infinite series of messengers who didn't write anything down. So you get contradictory results, whether it's an A theory of time or a B theory of time, which means what you result in is a contradiction. So I actually do think we have, when Craig says that this past infinite history uh, is impossible because actual infinites are impossible, I think that that is true and that you get there uh, with these thought experiments. You can explain why, even if you take an A or a B theory of time. So I hope that that is helpful um, and, 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 uh, and, and serves to explain. Now, uh, but, but to the weirdness issue that Alex did raise, what would Craig say to that? Well, Craig actually tells us what he would say to that. And I think it serves as a great commentary on worldview discussions on YouTube. So we're going to hear it and then I'll make some responses. So my strategy is that of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, um, in answer to David Hilbert, who said, no one will drive us from the paradise that Cantor has created for us. Wittgenstein says, I wouldn't dream of trying to drive anyone from this paradise. Instead, he said, I do something quite different. I try to show them that it's not a paradise so <laughs> that you'll leave of your own accord. He says, I would say, just look about you. You're welcome to this. And that's the same approach that I would take. Um, if you're willing to swallow these sorts of absurdities, okay, I can't, I can't move you from that, but um, I'm gonna leave the Cantorian paradise to the realm of the conceptual rather than the realm of the real. All right, so uh, what I love about this is Craig is saying, all right, fine. Now, this is putting aside the, the contradictions that I think are there. Uh, Craig is saying, all right, even if I couldn't show you an, an actual contradiction, which means that the idea, while absurd, isn't technically incoherent in that way that it involves a contradiction, like a married bachelor or a square circle or something like that. Okay, uh, fine, but if, if you're okay believing those absurdities, then I, fine, go ahead and believe them, but I'm not going to believe that. Now, you might say, but, but that means that he has an absolutely slam dunk proven his case beyond all contradiction. But again, remember, that's not what we're, we're not necessarily trying to do that in every case. Now, if we can do that, that's great. But th the fact is, what we're trying to show is that what you should believe is that premise two is true, that the universe began to exist. So uh, that's what you should believe, given this evidence. And I think Craig would say that. Craig would say someone should believe that rather than to embrace the absurdities. However, if you want to believe the absurdities, I can't stop you. That, you, you just go on believing those absurdities. 
this this brings me back to um, something that happened in the uh, Michael Jones versus Matt Dillahunty discussion that I also reviewed. And that is, uh, you'll recall that several times if you saw that discussion, that uh, Matt Dillahunty would say something like, well, that doesn't convince me. And Michael Jones would say, I don't care if that convinces you or not. And that's because it's not that we don't care about the person's soul or care about evangelism. We should care about those things. But what it is to say is because of the definition of atheism that is held by many of the internet atheists today, which is instead of um, uh, atheism meaning one who, an atheist means one who maintains the position that God does not exist. Instead, it means uh, one who is unconvinced uh, of God's existence or that lacks a belief in God. This leads to a situation where what often the debates look like is where classically you had one person on one side of the stage that's saying, yes, God does exist. And you had someone over here saying, no, God does not exist. And they could debate and you could see which one, which one wins, uh, you know, based on the evidence. Now you have more like some, someone here and this person is saying, yes, God does exist. And this person on the seesaw is sitting right in the middle saying, uh, you know, that, that's the theory anyway. They usually are not sitting right in the middle. But they're sitting right in the middle saying, I don't know. And, um, and, and so what that results in is winning the debate seems contingent on convincing the atheist that, uh, to believe Christian theism is true or that theism is true, depending on the issue. However, the problem is that's not what winning the debate looks like. Convincing your opponent is not winning the debate. Because here's the thing. On the one hand, I, do, I don't want just to tear down arguments. I want to win souls, to put it in evangelical terminology. But the fact is, in terms of a debate, winning the debate cannot just be convincing your opponent to think that you're right. Because think about it. I could lie and deceive my opponent in order to convince them I'm right. That wouldn't surely be winning the debate, not in any meaningful sense. Likewise, they could reject what I'm saying because they've constructed an epistemology that doesn't allow for the kind of evidence that I'm presenting, and that wouldn't be failing at the debate either. I like how Mike Winger put it in his debate with Matt Dillahunty, and I don't think he's the first person to say this, but if he is, he deserves credit. The first person I heard say it, and I like it, it's this. My job is not to convince you. My job is to prevent, uh, present good arguments. Your job is to be convinced by good arguments. Now, I'm not aiming any of this at Alex Malpass. I think you would agree with that. Nevertheless. Uh, what we often see in the internet uh, atheist world is, um, is, well, you've got to convince me this is true or else I win. That is not how this works. What we're trying to show is what you should accept to be true based on the evidence. And I like what Craig, how Craig framed this. We should accept the premise two is plausibly true, more likely to be true than false, because not accepting it leaves you in this realm of absurdities, and, those, and that, that surely counts against it. I think what one of the commenters here in the chat said a while ago at the beginning of this, I don't know how anyone doesn't say at least that it's more likely that the past history of the universe is finite than it is that the past history of the universe is infinite. And I think that that's an important thing to bring out. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this and move on to the, the uh, development of an infinite series by... Uh, uh, to, by addition, by, by uh, simultaneous addition. One, two, three, four, would you ever get to infinite? And I think it's interesting, and this is where we're going to take a theological detour here in just a moment, but Alex presents an interesting idea, an interesting uh, hypothetical about angels. Listen to what he says, and we'll make some comments after. So I'm saying um, if you thought of an angel who had been singing praises to God once a day throughout an infinite past, and you asked how many praises has the angel sung, 
you would say and he has sung an actually infinite number of praises and if we consider an angel who's singing praises throughout an infinite future um, if we ask how many praises will he sing we should give the same answer he will sing an actually infinite number of praises the only difference is that we've changed tense from the past tense to the future tense um, and uh, it seems to me that that change of tense doesn't make any difference to how many praises um, there are it just changes our perspective on whether they're past or future um, but if you think that there can't be an actually infinite number of things like Bill does then you should think that the future can't be endless right that it must come to an end at some point um, so this is a question of how do you reconcile the belief that the future it's possible that the future is endless with this mirroring right temporal mirroring of the argument we were just discussing all right so he raises this interesting idea of an angel singing praises once a day to god into the endless future right and wouldn't that result in an actual infinite a completed infinite and the, and and in fact he spices this up i don't know if it was just then or, or later on but he spices this up with um you know, craig would say no because each day that the angel sings, like we said before, let's go out 10 trillion years into the future, you could still add another number. So while the angel will continue singing on into the potential infinite, it will always be a potential infinite that we can attach an actual number to and will never actually be, to use Malpass's favored language, a completed infinite or an actual infinite because he'll always be approaching infinity, but he'll never actually arrive because you can't reach it by successive addition like that. Now, what Malpass wants to say and brings up, if not here later, is, yeah, but that's just based on how you're using um, ter terminology here. The future perfect would be uh, different than just the future terminology here. So you could say um, he will sing, this angel will sing um, an, inf an actual infinite number instead of there will be a point at which it will be true that he, he has sung or he will have sung an infinite uh, number. But what Craig wants to say is, no, no, no. Neither will he ever actually, it'll never be an actual infinite because he never will sing an actual infinite number. He will always be a, 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 in a potential infinite, approaching it, but never arriving at an actual infinite. And um, it will never be the case that he will have sung an actual infinite number of things. It will still always be potential, approaching, but never arriving at an actual or completed infinite. Um, we'll come back to that at the end because I think that um, Malpass actually raises some interesting uh, afterthoughts on that in his um, debate review. So, so stick around for that as well as the question and answer time if 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 we have any. Uh, and if you do have a question and answer a question for me uh, or a statement or something, uh, make sure to tag Trinity Radio in it so that I'll know that it's you. But um, but but this is this is interesting as we consider this because while that's kind of the answer that's given. I do think that there is a theological question we could raise that was not raised, which is namely, all right, look, doesn't, and this is where I guess I should go ahead and put it uh, back up here. Uh, this is where John raised, can God imagine a scenario of infinitely many actual stars? So I came up with this in my own thinking several years ago and, and got scared for a minute. I mentioned this when I was on David Wood's show. Um, I, I, I thought I'd actually come up with a philosophical argument that demonstrates that open theism must be true. Open theism being the idea that God um, does not have exhaustive knowledge of all future events. And they, they mark that up differently. But I thought I'd come up with <laughs> an argument for that because my, my thinking was along these lines. 
uh, isn't God perfectly aware of all future events? And isn't that future of events, that potential infinite, a potential infinite? Doesn't it extend infinitely into the future? And if God is aware of all these future events, then in God's mind, isn't there an actual infinite? Now, uh, even if it was a potential infinite, the problem that got me was in terms of God's thinking, God's thinking would have to cross an actual infinite number of things, which as we discussed earlier, one could never cross an actual infinite number of things because if you crossed half of infinity, you'd still have infinity to go. So I got stuck on this for a while, and it actually took me a year before someone really pressed me on it, and I was forced to kind of investigate the journal articles and find out if anyone had said much about this and find out what the answer is. And I actually did find that much had been said about this, as is always the case in philosophy. You think you've come up with something that nobody's ever thought of before. Someone has thought of it before in most cases. And so as I thought this through and read the journal articles, it, it did become clear to me. Part of what it means for something to be a potential infinite is that it exists conceptually rather than in reality. And as far as, so this would be a potential infinite even in God's conception. However, uh, the, the, the more difficult uh, issue of God's knowledge having to cross an actual infinite was addressed by the fact of God's timelessness and how that would result, how that would impact God's cognition. So God is cognitively simple. Now, what that means is not to say that he's like, you know, some ditzy person, you know, that doesn't know anything. He's not simple in that sense. He's cognitively simple. And what that means is that timelessly, God, sans the physical universe, is aware of all events uh, that for us will be past, present, or future, right? He's cognitively aware instantly. God doesn't learn. If we reject open theism and we go with a classical explanation of theism, God doesn't learn. When we think through things to combine our thoughts, to arrive at a new conclusion about, say, what we should do or what this means is happening, then we are in a process of learning. If I hear a sound outside of the room that I'm in and I think about what that sound means or is like, I'm actually combining concepts and ideas to learn and arrive at a conclusion. God doesn't learn. God doesn't go through those kinds of things. Even if you don't believe in God, this model of God that we're presenting doesn't have to learn and move through those things like that. He knows everything uh, statically and simultaneously, uh, logically simultaneously. To, to give you an example, this means that he doesn't have to cross. Uh, if he wants to think about something 10 trillion years in the future, he doesn't have to cross an act, uh, you know, a number of things or, or you know, let's say infinitely in the future. He doesn't have to cross an infinite number of things to arrive at that because he knows it all simultaneously, logically simultaneously. To give you an, an explanation or an analogy for that, how this is understandable in your own thinking, think about um, every one of you in the chat is aware of all the whole numbers between zero and 100 right? One, two, three, four, all the way to 100. So if I ask you what number comes after 53, you don't have to think through all the numbers to arrive at 54. You simply know 54. Or if I ask you to name all the tens um, between uh, uh, 1 and 100, I don't have to ask you what 10 comes after 30. You'd say, well, 40, right? You, you just know these things instantaneously. And in that sense, you get a taste of co uh, cognitive simplicity. God has that with all knowledge. So he doesn't have this problem with crossing an actual infinite. And part of what it means for something to be a potential infinite is that it exists conceptually. And so these are, even with God's knowledge, it's a potential infinite and not an actual infinite. And so this doesn't really pose a major problem, I don't think. So I thought we should take that theological 
uh, detour to, to understand this. Um, let's see, we have some criticism here. Uh, Grogan says, all this is like a word salad. It could be actual infinite conceptually versus in reality. God is cognitively simple, pure speculation made up. Well, uh, this is the sort of thing that I try to get away from on this channel <coughs> is I like to have civil dialogue that doesn't involve uh, this kind of a characterization of someone. Word salad seems to be one of the favorite terms to throw around when someone is confused by a notion or doesn't feel like addressing it uh, on its own terms. What I've just said is something that I'm sure Alex Malpass would be perfectly fine discussing the intricacies of. And this is just rhetoric. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is the ideas of potential versus actual infinite, or as Malpass, I think, fairly characterized, um, incomplete versus complete infinite are perfectly fine categories that get discussed all the time. There's just no problem with this. So I hope that that helps you to learn from this process so that you can perhaps do some more clear thinking on these issues in the future. I don't mean any condescension by that, and I hope it doesn't come off that way. All right, so uh, let's move on and let's take a look at uh, something else that is said about successive addition. Let's suppose that Alex is right and that an actually infinite number of things can exist. There's a second independent argument for the finitude of the past based upon the impossibility of forming an actual infinite by successive addition. It's important for your viewers to understand that in infinite set theory, um, there is no successive formation of infinite sets. All of the members of an infinite set are given simultaneously by the definition of membership. But there is no uh, account at all of adding members one after another to arrive at infinity. Um, and yet this is the way in which the past has been formed, adding one event after another to form the collection of events which are past at any point in the future. So the argument would go like this. An actually infinite collection of things cannot be formed by successive addition. Secondly, the series of past events in time uh, has been formed by successive addition. And therefore, the series of events, uh, past events in time cannot be actually infinite. All right, so they're just clarifying again uh, why Craig uses the terminology he does and uh, why he says that you can't form this by. It, but it seems, you know, again, people will criticize by saying, well, just because something is intuitive doesn't make it make, mean it's true. But it, it not only, it seems almost more than intuitive, right? <laughs> to say that counting one, two, if Cameron starts counting one, two, three, four, five, six, he could never, if he could live forever, he could never reach infinity because. What number, at what number are you now no longer in the realm of the numerical and you've reached the, you know, alpha naught, you've reached, you've reached the realm of the infinite. When does that come, right? At what point does that, does that arrive? Uh, it seems like you would always be able to add another number. And that seems demonstrably true. But let's hear what, um, what Malpass has to say about this. And so uh, I think there is such an asymmetry. Why? Well, because I hold of what's called a tensed theory of time. According to this theory of time, temporal becoming is an objective feature of reality, um, and there are no events later than the present event. So on a tense theory of time, uh, it would entail that there is no actually infinite number of future events. On the contrary, the number of future events is just zero. There are no future events on a tense theory of time because they haven't yet come into being. 
But the series of events from any arbitrary point in time going in the later than direction will always be potentially infinite. That is to say, it's always finite, but it's increasing toward infinity as a limit. It is potentially infinite. By contrast, as I said, in my response to Aristotle and Thomas, um, for the series of past events to be potentially infinite in the same way, it would have to be growing in the earlier than direction and be at every point finite, which is uh, contrary to the nature of temporal becoming. Yeah, so I thought that was, I thought the next clip was Alex. I think the next clip is Alex, but this is important. So what do we mean by A theory and B theory of time? So I've kind of already explained this indirectly, but, but I'll go ahead and make it clear now. So the A theory or the tensed theory of time says that the past is no longer real. The future is not, but it was real. The past was real, but it's not real now. It doesn't exist somewhere, right? And the future will be real, but it's not real yet. The only thing that's real is the present, right? That's that's the A theory of time. So um, so that's interesting. And there there are other ideas we could talk about, like a spotlighting model or a, um, a growing block model and things like that. But usually it's thought of as the A theory of time, which says that the present is real. This is called presentism. And the, the B theory of time says... Um, no, they all exist, and you get to. It's really difficult to talk about the B theory of time because we're so used to tensed terminology, uh, past, present, was, is, will be, these kind of things, that it's difficult to talk about it. But in some logical sense, the or ontological sense, the past, present, and future are all real, and exist simultaneously. So they they are all real. This is the view on which uh, time travel could be possible. So if you're watching a time travel uh, film. Uh, like Back to the Future or something, then it's probably something like a B theory of time, right? So, uh, so, so, but they're both operating on this tensed view of time. Malpass and Craig. I don't think Malpass is committed to uh, a tensed theory of time. Uh, theory of time, but it seems that he's intentionally, tacitly conceded to the discussion in the terms of ta uh, of uh, tensed theory of time. And so what Craig is saying is that as you're moving forward in this tensed A theory of time, you would never actually get to um, an actual infinite because, as we've said, you, you would always be approaching but never arriving. I'm really um, tempted to go ahead and respond to some of the comments in the chat that uh, assume that I and others who think like me are Bible literalists, whatever that even means. Um, I'm tempted to respond to the claims that about Craig going up against a cosmologist who like Sean Carroll, who is ill-equipped to talk about the philosophical side of this thing at the level that Craig is. But we'll leave that for later. <laughs> we'll move on uh, to hear what uh, Malpass has to say, I think. Let's see. If Cameron starts counting now and never finishes, then for each natural number n, he will count that number. Um, and that holds for all of the natural numbers. So Although he won't count a number that's more than finitely far away from zero, the quantity of numbers that he will count, like the cardinality, is Alice North, right? So, so if we think about Alice North in terms of cardinality instead of ordinality, it does feel like that type of counting to infinity isn't ruled out purely by highlighting the impossibility of transitioning from the finite to the infinite. Okay, so uh, the important thing here to note is um, that that Craig wants to emphasize. I think he would uh, agree 
that Cameron will count every number. So, so going forward, Cameron will count every number. He will never count all the numbers. You understand the difference? Because as we move forward in time and, and each thing that he's counting or moment that he's counting or whatever uh, becomes real, it, 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 the temporal becoming, it becomes real, then he will count that. And in that sense, he will count every number that comes. But he will never count all the numbers because that would be to violate this idea. Uh, it, it would be to suggest that you could reach infinity through successive addition. And so that's an important thing, I, I think, to, to mention there. Um, I don't know if we got to it yet or if it's passed already, but um, one thing that is raised is, I think Cameron actually raises it, is that um, this would be a violation of the composition fallacy. And the composition fallacy says something like, would be to mistake uh, the whole of something for what can be done with the parts of something. So if we were to say, my favorite one is to say, um, atoms are invisible to the naked eye, dogs are made of atoms, therefore dogs are invisible to the naked eye. That would be a composition fallacy. And so the allegation would be that this is a composition fallacy because you're saying, because we can count the parts of something going forward, then that means that we should be able to count the whole of something. That, that what is true of the parts in that sense is true of the whole, but that's clearly not necessarily the case as demonstrated by the analogy with the atoms and the dogs. Now, to Malpass's uh, credit, he, he actually um, points out, I don't think he says it flatly like this, but he does it by analogy. He says, no, 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 because it's not always true, right? The, the composition reasoning doesn't always result in a fallacy, and Craig would be happy to agree. So Craig often uses as an example, you could have a green fence and every part of the fence, every picket of the fence is green and the whole fence is green because every picket of the fence is green, right? So you, you can, it's not necessarily a fallacy to, to, to reason by way of composition or make comments by way of composition. And uh, uh, similarly, uh, Malpass says, look, man, I could eat a slice of bread and I could eat the whole loaf of bread. Now, at first, Craig's like, that's a great example, man, because you may not be able to eat uh, the whole loaf of bread, depending on how big this loaf is. But that's semantics, really. Malpass is right. It's conceivable with some loaves of bread, and I could prove the point if you like, that I could eat the whole loaf and I could eat one slice. All that to point out that composition reasoning isn't necessarily a fallacy all the time in every case. But uh, that still begs the question of, is it in this case? Here, just because you can count one, two, three, four, five, six, doesn't translate to you can count all of the infinity, or that at some point this successive addition turns into infinity. And I think that that is a really important distinction. Uh, let's move on to the last clip, and and then we'll make some comments about the debate. So let's see what it says. So he just keeps counting, right? And the, the future has no end to it. So it, as it were, Cameron will fill the future with his counting events. Now, it feels like now, if that was true, right, I would be able to truly say now that Cameron will count, say, the number 10. That's true. He will count the number a million and 10. That's true. For any number, it's true that Cameron will count that number. Yes. And it feels to me that this is like the loaf of bread one, not like the uh, every human has a mother. And I want some. I want you to explain to me, uh, or well, obviously I grant that this inference isn't universally truth-preserving. I'm just not sure why it's wrong in this instance right and just sort of, sort of saying that sometimes this pattern of inference is not truth preserving doesn't really help me here it, it yes. seems to me that this is one of those cases where it is truth preserving right and I'm, I'm not sure how how else to say it apart from to like obviously if he's going to count all of those numbers it's true that he will count all of the numbers right it just feels it feels obvious to me 
So, uh -huh. so can you do something to explain to me why? Probably because you can't convert a potential infinite into an actual infinite by successive addition. Right. So Craig just sticks with um, his uh, point that he's been making here that I, that I think is important. So what I would say in response to Malpass, now Malpass makes what seems like a really good point. And it is a, a, a good contribution to the discussion, which is to say, look, if, if it's true that, that, that Cameron will continue counting and he will count to 10 and a million and 10 million and on out, that, that it will be the case, then if he's going to continue counting endlessly, why can't we say then he will count an infinite number of things? Um, well, the problem with that is what's true is not that he will count an infinite number of things, but that he will continue counting endlessly, right? That he will keep counting. It doesn't mean that he'll ever reach infinity. It just means it will always be true that he is still counting. That's the relevant difference, I think. And that's an important difference that he will always continue counting, but it's not necessarily the case. It's not the case that he will ever reach infinity. That's why Craig just counters with, well, because you can't reach an infinite by uh, successive addition. So I think that that answers this pretty well. Now, um, I think, uh, is that all the clips I want to play? Yeah. So, so let me go ahead and, and, and talk about a couple of things that came out. I didn't listen to all of your, um, <clears throat> response video, Alex. And, and that's because it was like three hours long and I just became aware of it a little while before making this video, this live stream. So forgive me for that. I do intend to listen to all of it because I think there's stuff I can learn from you and I appreciate your contributions. Uh, but uh, let me, let me respond to a couple of things. So one of the important things that he brings out is, 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 um, has to do with this tenseless theory of time. So the future, Malpass wants to say something like the future will never be an actual infinite because, or he's responding to this because future events aren't real, right? That's, that's what Craig wants to say. Look, there doesn't already exist an actual infinite number of future events. It's only potential infinite. It's an incomplete infinite and not a complete infinite because, um, the future isn't real. It doesn't exist yet on the tensed theory of time. Uh, and what, what Alex wants to do is then to press that in the other direction to show that there is this symmetry, or at least there could be this symmetry between the past and the future. And you have to break that symmetry somewhere. And that came up in the debate a little bit, but he made it more explicit in this uh, response video where he says, look, if you're going to say that, the past isn't real either. And you're counting those um, in your reasoning about the past. So why can't the past just be not real and um, uh, represent an actual or a potential infinite in the past or perhaps an actual infinite in the past? Uh, an infinite has elapsed since you believe an infinite will elapse. That's the way to say it. Uh, and isn't that the meaningful thing? Isn't that really what we should say about this? And that's a fair discussion because what he's pointing out is there is something that Craig must believe on his tensed A theory version of time that is the same about future events and past events. Namely, they're not real in either case. The future is not yet real, though it will be, and the past is no longer real, though it was. That is a, an interesting criticism. First, let me lower the stakes a little bit. I'll lower the stakes a bit by pointing out that even if we were to grant this, it would, here's, what it would not, here's where it would not cause a problem. What it would, it would not cause a problem for anyone uh, that thinks that the past is not endless, is not potentially infinite. You say, yeah, but you Christian theists do think that it is potentially infinite and that it is endless. Fair enough. I'm just saying, if, this, if you were right and, and, you're, and you're all, you got everything you wanted, 
it would still be the case that you haven't shown that the past is uh, infinite. All you've shown is that the future cannot be infinite, right? Um, because of this symmetry issue. Uh, however, even then, you still wouldn't have resolved the problem of the actual infinites being impossible, as we talked about earlier. It would only be a response to this um, reaching infinity by successive addition, at least as far as I can tell, I'm thinking this through even as I'm talking to you, and I will think more about this. But it still wouldn't res resolve the other issues that we've already discussed. It would just knock down this particular defense that Craig has for premise two of the Kalam cosmological argument. But thirdly, I'd say, and this is just something to think about, and as I say, I'm going to continue to think about this. And you also think about, he is pointing out a similarity between these two states of affairs, future events and past events. Namely, that similarity is that neither are real presently. That is fair enough, and, and that is a similarity. But there are other ways that are important to think about that they are not similar. Namely, the past events have been instantiated. That's one. Whereas the future events have not been instantiated. And the current state of affairs in the present is the culmination of effects which have been instantiated. Those two things, I think, are important to consider when we're talking about the past series versus the future series. Because one of the effects that we want to point out is the problem of arriving at this present moment, as has been pointed out in the chat more than once by Pedro Jr. And also I pointed out earlier in the video. And that seems like a meaningful difference that I think should be discussed. Another thing that was brought out is, uh, the and we talked about this a little bit, the past is potentially infinite in that it's growing with every new present event that passes into the past. So, um, so, so the past, you know, Craig's saying the past isn't potentially infinite because that would mean it's growing in the later than or earlier than direction. Well, perhaps um, it's, it's, perhaps we could acquiesce and say, perhaps it is growing, and in that sense is a potential infinite, but it's growing, as I said earlier, in the later than direction. So it, with each new moment that has passed during this YouTube video that's now gone into the past and no longer exists, the past is growing in that sense, in the later than direction, not in the earlier than direction, which means that's just to say that the whole timeline is potentially infinite, but never actually infinite, which I don't think resolves the problem. Now, I could say there are probably some things that were raised in that response video that I could comment on further, and perhaps there'll be a later video in which we do that. But that kind of brings me to the conclusion of what I wanted to say about this. And so with that, let me take a look. Again, I don't see too many, I don't see anything really that is tagged as Trinity Radio that I could respond to. If you want me to respond to something or you like my thoughts or you want to make a comment, uh, that I'll place on the screen. Go ahead and type in Trinity Radio, at Trinity Radio, before the comment so that I can clearly see it, um, so that I can respond to it. So while you're doing that, uh, and before we go, let me let me just make kind of a passing comment or a summative comment about all this to bring it back to what matters the most to me. And this is the point at which the apologetics somewhat ends, and I'm just sharing with you my personal thought uh, about the importance of this. If we defend premise two of, of the Kalam cosmological argument, now premise one has not been discussed. I've defended that in a bunch of videos. You can look at the playlist on YouTube, uh, on our, our youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter on this channel and look at the God's existence playlist, evidence for God's existence, and you'll see it multiple times there. Uh, if you want to get right to it, look for the times that I've responded to rationality rules and cosmic skeptic. They mostly have brought these challenges that I've responded to. Um, and, but if, but if we grant this argument, if we grant premise one and premise two, and this was a defense of premise two, we have good reason to believe that the universe began to exist. 
<laughs> not only does the Bible say that, so number one, that's a win, a predictive win for the Bible. Uh, but two, we can reason through the conceptual analysis that a personal creator is the best explanation uh, for that because the universe is made of three things, uh, generally speaking, time, space, and physical matter. So things, since things can't bring themselves into existence, the, whatever is the cause of the physical universe must be spaceless, timeless, and non-material. But it must also have causal powers and other things that are spaceless, timeless, and non-material, like perhaps numbers or um, uh, what are perhaps the laws of logic. And I say perhaps strongly there. Um, we, we would say there that um, th those don't have causal powers, so you need something with causal powers. Not only would uh, a mind independent of a physical body have those causal powers. And if you say, well, but we don't have any evidence of a mind independent of a physical body, this argument is in itself also an argument for a mind independent of a physical body. But also this cause, the first, the cause of the physical universe must also have libertarian freedom because there was no prior determinism to work on the thing, to cause it to cause whatever, right? And, and it would, and it couldn't be random because there's in, in a spaceless timeless state, there's, there's nothing random happening. There's nothing happening at all in a state of nothingness. So you have this initial cause must have libertarian free will. It can't be determined. It can't be random. It must have libertarian freedom. And what sort of things might have libertarian freedom? Personal agents do and nothing else. And that means that the cause is a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful to create the universe mind. And that is at base what we could say Genesis 1.1 might be talking about. It says in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. So I think uh, I think that works, and that is a powerful reason to believe that God exists. When you follow that with a case for the resurrection, uh, appropriate to this time of year as it's near Easter just passed, um, we have a good reason to believe that uh, the Christian God exists, and therefore you should. <laughs> I'm not giving you a slam dunk here that you have to, right? But you can stay in the realm of the absurdity or the realm of the less plausible or less likely, and I'm not saying you're an idiot or anything like that, but I think you should believe that the Christian God exists. And to that end, I'd like you to invite you to uh, begin a relationship with that Christian God, and you can do that by uh, trusting him and repenting of your sins. You say, but I can't force myself to believe everything about Christianity. Well, you know what? You don't have to force yourself to believe everything about Christianity to trust, to trust. I don't have to know with certainty that the chair is going to hold me up in order to trust the chair. And I would invite you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. That means turning from your sins and um, trusting Christ. I invite you to do that. And if you have done that, I encourage you to uh, contact me at braxton at trinityradio.org. Um, I did see someone uh, tag Trinity Radio. It's a little bit different on the software that I'm using to see clearly when someone does that. But I do see here that Jack Plumridge says, what do you think of this? An actual infinite by definition has no end. Premise two, the past by definition has ended. Therefore, the term past infinite is self-contradictory. Um, obviously, I believe, let's see. Um, I You could say, you could say with premise one, the an actual infinite has no um, termination in, in one direction, right? I think you. I think that it would be to circumvent the argument to say that an actual infinite couldn't exist in the earlier than direction. However, you could then defend premise one by showing that um, you couldn't cross an actual past infinite number of things. And then that, of course, could serve as a defense of premise one. And to that end, <laughs> no pun intended, um, you could perhaps this argument goes through. So um, I, I, that's what I think about that. Um, 
Uh, yeah. So let's see. Is there anything else? Amen, Braxton. Thank you, Isaiah Braxton. And Isaiah Braxton, I did check out your TikTok channel. And you never talk in your TikToks. I only hear your voice, but I don't ever see you talking in your TikToks. But, and if that's not you, forgive me, but I think that was you. Um, let's see. I don't see anything else. So um, I'm going to go, let's see. Uh, Trinity Radio, can you explain the infinite regress? So I did that at the top of the show, but real quickly again here. So the infinite regress, and by the way, this works on the Mormon conception of the Father, right? This doesn't just work on time or past infinite events. It also works on any act, supposedly actual infinite series. And the Mormons say that there is a Father now, but there was a Father before that Father and a Father before that Father, and it just goes back and there never was a first Father. Well, that is demonstrably false because of the impossibility of a past infinite regression of things, causal events, or temporal moments. And the reason is because, if, first of all, and I didn't say this yet in this, uh, in this video, so I'll say it now. You, if you don't have a first point, then you don't even have a first place to start crossing the actual infinite, right? So if I give you an actual infinite, how would you ever even begin to start crossing it? This is where J.P. Moreland says it'd be like trying to jump out of a hole without a bottom to it, right? How would you even, this doesn't even make any sense on the surface. But let's say you, you, you could start crossing it. You can never get to this moment because if you crossed half of infinite, remember the infinite library, you took away half of the books, you'd still have infinite books. If you cross half of infinite, you'd still have just as far to go because you have now still a whole infinite um, to, to get there. So uh, that's the big problem with um, a past infinite regress. All right. So uh, let's see. Anything else? Um, I don't see anything that should be uh, that I want to comment on. Uh, Isaiah Braxton says, my voice is deep. I'm ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, especially if your voice is deep. I mean, come on. Deep voices are... are uh, uh, helpful in broadcasting. <clears throat> Usually when I get to this point in the in the broadcast, my voice is about gone. But listen, I'm going to go ahead and close this down and I'll be happy to communicate with you all on Twitter or um, on this video in the comments or anywhere else that you want to. But I really appreciate all of you being here. And if you've listened this long, I, I would just ask you to consider, um, consider uh, subscribing to the channel. It costs you nothing. And click that notification bell so that you know when these videos are going to come in the future and uh, you can be here. And it's really important to me, really helpful to me. I thank you all so, so much for all of that. Thank you for being here. It means the world to me and I love every one of you. This channel exists because we love atheists. If you want to become a patron, we love it. But I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. The unapologetic apologist, you can't ninja off the sides. I've addressed that multiple times. We'll call it the ninja off the wall fallacy. Can't do it. Can't do it.